Just a quick mention, feels like a public announcement this, Kev, ahead of this week's show, that next week's show, now this is forward planning, will come out a little later in the week due to some travel stuff we both have. But more importantly, it's going to be Kit Week. Now, I know some people love their kit, and even talking about kit, and some people couldn't give a f*** about their kit. So we're going to make this a Kit Week where there's as much emphasis on the creative reasoning behind stuff. Not that this one has an unbelievably wide aperture, or you can turn the dial on this camera around to number 11, for anyone who's loving a good Spinal Tap reference. But equally, because it's Kit Week, we'll be digging out slightly more Kit-specific questions in the Q&As. Bear that in mind if you're sending them in, and the guest will be the man who built ShotKit, a superb resource for learning about photography, and of course the website for anyone who rubs their knees just a little harder under the desk when viewing the bags of other great photographers. That's next week anyway. Should we crack on with this week's... The Fujicast. Welcome to the Fujicast, episode four. I'm Neil James. I'm Kevin Mullins. And uh, this week on the show, second part of uh, the Canadian ex-photographer. Um, I always find it's strange when I say ex-photographer. He's not a former photographer. <laughs> ex-photographer. Well, you know because you're a Fujifilm lover. So you'll know that myself and Kev are talking about the ex-photography, ex-photographer scheme. Um, but uh, Patrick Laroc will continue that uh, road trip that he was making across uh, Canada. We had part one last week. It's all about, um, I, I suppose, his, his mission to find photography again, wasn't it? It was. Lucky man. So, Absolutely. Um, so we'll play that shortly. You had a good week? Been up to much? Yeah, not too bad. Um, just come back from a couple of days up in Edinburgh doing some street photography, uh, which was great. Good. Pl- I love Scotland. Always cold. Always cold. And it's it's such a beautiful place, Scotland. Uh, Edinburgh and beyond. I, I just, it, you know, I, even though I'm from Wales, I have to say I think that the highlands of Scotland are the most beautiful part of the United uh, Kingdom. Yeah. And I have very fond memories of Scotland from my time in broadcasting. And they gave... Um, I did a roadshow um, in, uh, now I have to say this very carefully, Mossabalach. <laughs> now, if you, if you say, welcome to the roadshow at Mossabalach, enough times, sh- sooner or later you're going to get those words the wrong way round. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll never good. forget that. So you've been on a, a, a street photography session. There. Good. Yeah, all good. Um, nice people, nice uh, nice place to shoot. Uh, always good in Scotland. Yeah, other than that, um, just kind of website stuff and updating my website, trying to get that revamped a little bit. And uh, we had a back end of the week. We just came back from a, a little half-term break with the kids. Um, Which is usually to, hot tub city for you, isn't hot it? Hot tubs, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I look like a prune now. Um, so I sat in a hot tub for a few days while the kids run around me. <laughs> um, but no, it was good. And, and you know, it's it, it's interesting because now my kids are growing up, as yours are, mm. and things are changing. You know, no longer can I get those really cute type pictures that that we all adored. You know, the, the totally innocent ones. Because now Rose, especially, she's more. You know, she kind of looks at me, and sometimes she she does the the kind of two fingers, kind of not not rude two fingers, but the the, um, whatever you would call that, the kind of the, the well, it's the the Asian um, two finger selfie thing, isn't it? Yeah, that that's kind of that's thing. where it became yeah, famous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she walks around the house with a you know with a little hat on and stuff. You know, she's a proper little woman now. Uh, bless her, and I love her. I, I absolutely wanted to grow up independently and and you know and, and find your own feet. But I do miss that that yeah. that kind of cuteness. Uh, you know, start sharpening that chainsaw because very soon she's going to be bringing those boys home. Uh, Sit down, lad. Let's have a chat. <laughs> 
yeah, I'm not even. Uh, my mind's not even in that place. I've got to get over them. You can like, set, set the dogs on them. Yeah. Oh my god! Don't talk to me about. Sit the down. Dogs. Let's talk. <laughs> that that little does does Albie? I mean, Albie's brilliant when you um, Albie is is obviously Rosa is, but but Albie's <laughs> is is often in your holiday pictures because he's got a million and one expressions. Oh, he's great. He's a real little character, you know. He's uh, and also I think because he's he's grown up one hundred percent with with me and my photography, and I've encouraged them to do it, and I've got them cameras and all kinds of stuff. So I think he understands it a little bit more than Rosa, mm. to be honest with you, because when Rosa was born, I was only just starting out with this this journey, and you know it was a little bit different. So uh, Albie, for him, it's you know he's always known me as uh, as a photographer, you yeah. know, and traveling and doing this and doing that and you know and, and whatever. That's that's always been it. So I think that he's yeah he's he understands it. He gets it a little bit more. Does does he have a um, any social media channels like Instagram or anything? Or or, or have you kind of steered them away away from that? No. So Albie, no, he's he's still only six years. When's old. When's the right time for kids to get Instagram? <sighs> Man, you know, I, parental question. Personally, I like to say never. Um, no. no, I know, I know, because I know. Uh, is Jack? Is it Jack? You miserable Thomas? thing! Set the dogs on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, miserable dad. I, I know, I know, I know, I know. Uh, yeah, but it, it goes back to this kind of always being cute, doesn't it? You know, and and yeah, and uh, but I know that. Uh, which one is it, Jack or Thomas? Well, they Scott? both have Instagram okay. accounts, but Th- Thomas um, of the two is really into his Instagram. So. Yeah. It's a fledgling um, uh, channel, and it, it sort of it goes up and down in numbers according yeah. to whether he posts a picture of a cake that grandma's made, yeah. or whether he he sort of stays faithful to this this niche that he was trying to develop, which is all about trains. Yeah, so he takes pictures. Of, he loves trains. Yeah, is he, um, he still loves trains? I love that about him. Yeah. Last week we we went and did a little photographic um, trip. Uh, to our local station and blagged our way onto one of the trains that was waiting on the platform. We got into the um, got into the cab and he had photos of him at the controls and all that. Kind of, he loves all that stuff. Yeah, no, and, good for him. That's great. And he's always looking for subscribers. So uh, Bub's Pictures is his uh, Instagram handle. Go look for him. It's a it's a channel about be nice, play nice. But uh, but you know I I don't know. I think I I actually think that they're going to come up. Um, at some stage very soon wanting their own uh, yeah. social media channels and they've grown up actually in a house where they've they've listened and had to appreciate the fact I mean I know you have a compared to me you have a massive YouTube presence I mean your your subscriber numbers are, what are they 22,000 at the moment yeah 22 and a half something like that yeah so I know it's not as huge as somebody like a Peter McKinnon or a mm. Casey Neistat mm. and so on and so forth but it's still that's a sizable chunk that that's that's a that's a good chunk of a football stadium yeah I mean it, follow you it, it's interesting if you think about it like well, that yeah I mean yeah and I so don't think about it like that well, they've, but, they've, but, so they've grown up with it so and, and I've got only 4,000 so it's just about to tickle onto 4,000 mm. and they've grown up with the comments and the abuse and 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 the negative side of it mm. as well as seeing the positive side of it yeah and and if is that what you're worried about no i you know what instagram actually is a very benign platform i think in that respect it's it's good i like instagram um it's the other elements of social media that that, that i worry about but you know on that point it's it's really interesting because i think by the time that our children especially get to kind of mid-teens i think that bubble will have be burst that that the horribleness that exists in some cases um 
I think that will go away because schools, like our children, have a lesson every week, and bearing in mind they're in primary school, about online um, social practices, mm. security, safety, oh, bullying. That's a great idea. Yeah, and and I think that 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 will kind of fade into society. You know mm. that that kind of power of it, and and people will understand more that that it's just not nice to be cruel. You know, I mean, my kids. You talk about this to the um, YouTube following. All my kids want. They're like, Dad, when are you going to get 100,000 followers? And I'm like, well... <laughs> Party! Never, probably. No, but. not true. It's, it's, I've noticed it creep up in the last year. Yeah, it's crept up in the last well, year. So I, I, yeah. by my reckoning, I'll be about 135 when we get to 100,000. However, they're only interested because they want the little want silver the, plaque. They want the silver plaque yeah. in the frame. Yeah, that's, oh. all, they're, that's all they're interested they're in. They're going to fight over that then. Yeah. Who's going to have it? The dog, probably. Bloody thing. <laughs> the dog. We love the dog. <laughs> um, talking of photos, um, and I'm going to try and sort of dampen down the, the laughter because um, I, I wanted to draw you to a book um, by a guy called Tom Stoddart. He is a phenomenal photojournalist and one of the British greats still alive uh, and still young, Tom, if you're listening. Um, and his work, and this particular book that I, I've um, I've got here is Eyewitness, and uh, it's it's famine. I mean, they're not comfortable pictures necessarily, but um, to have uh, look at who wrote the forward. If you can hold that page open that I've I've asked you to hold open, look who wrote the forward. This shows you how how potent Tom's photography is. It's worth getting this book, uh, Eyewitness. Sir Bob Geldof. Sir Bob Geldof. Mm-hmm. I mean, could you have any... When it comes to talking about famine, Africa, mm. the problems on that continent, I can't think of a um, a more fitting um, person to write to write that forward to a book. Yeah, absolutely. But the, but the yeah. page I've... I've um, I held open for you there, and I'm very, very fortunate. And talking of YouTube, it does all sort of... <laughs> There's all sort of dovetail in this because my film about Tom Stoddart is on my Neil James Photo YouTube channel. And uh, Tom, I think he might talk about this particular image. Um, but there's there's an image that haunts me. There's two images of Tom's that haunts me that haunt me. Uh, one of them isn't in the book. Maybe we'll talk about that in a second. And this one is in the book. And this is um, uh, a young African lad uh, who'd collected grain or something in in a bag and you can see his his i mean the malnutrition in this lad is unbelievable it's one of those you know i don't want to use the word atypical african malnutrition pictures but but it is in in that respect i mean it's a it's a wretched child that that you know there should there should be no hunger like this in the world if it was a perfect world Mm. um and then Tom recounts this story as he's taking uh, or making a picture of this child who's uh, crawling or, uh, across the floor with this bag. He can hardly walk. Along comes um, a more well-dressed um, lad uh, who's obviously not malnutritioned, um, and he's, he's dressed in, in, in white robes, and he literally steals this bag from this child and walks off with it. And I asked Tom at the time, I said, as, as a photojournalist, do you not feel inclined to say, Oi, no, 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 and go and grab that bag back? And his answer was, you can't do that. You can't interfere. You can empathise, you can sympathise, but you can't solve the world's problems. Um, 
which I thought was uh, it's a, it's a it's a potent picture that isn't it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll ask Tom and see if we can share that one on the uh, on the show notes um, with a link to the book as well because it's worth checking out Tom Stoddart's work. The the other picture which which affected me was um, he took the um, he made the picture of the uh, the Pan Am airliner that was side down in a uh, field near Lockerbie, uh, the Lockerbie disaster with the aircraft that was yeah. blown out the sky, and. Um, he um, he happened to be closer to the area, I think, and he was he was able to get to, to Lockerbie reasonably quickly. And he took a photograph of the of the aircraft, uh, the nose cone that was actually opposite a graveyard, um, and he was behind the the graves across the road. And he took this photograph of the the airliner with 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 its nose cone. And there's a ghostly figure because he had to shoot. It was, it was low light. It was early morning, mm. and he shot this on a very low. Um, shutter speed, and you see this policeman walking across. Mm. Looks like a, it cuts a ghostly figure in front of this mm. this airliner. It's it's just um, and I saw. I remember seeing that picture as a lad. I had no idea that years later I would be sat in the same room as a photojournalist that made a picture that probably impacted me most as far as photojournalist pictures have ever have ever affected me. That was the picture. It was on the front of all the papers, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, it was. It, yeah. was, it, it was, was his image. It was a well documented picture. Do you have an image like that that's affected you? I mean, I know I, I, both of us didn't start our lives turning out expecting to be photographers. I was in radio broadcasting. You were, um, you were in IT. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think I have a specific picture, but I definitely, even though I had no knowledge or interest as such in photography, I always used to, uh, you know, my parents had the Sunday Times, and uh, you know, it'd be the Sunday Times magazine, uh, yeah. uh, the, the the pictures in there, especially, you know, they, actually, in uh, a couple of weeks ago in the Sunday Times, they had another article, a Don McCullen article, and and it's actually about his exhibition that's coming up. Yeah, um, that's yeah, which is in. We should go and see that. We should go and see that together. Yeah. Um, so yeah, those kind of things were ones that I would gravitate towards, but not necessarily. I don't. I don't specifically have an iconic picture of stuff. Um, anyway, what have you been up to? We never really. Well, I'm super excited. I'm going back to Gambia. Mm. I'm. I know. I mentioned this last week. I the the bags have been packed for weeks. <laughs> well, not not really. Did you get them down to five kilograms? <laughs> no, it's, it's eight or nine. I need to get yeah. down to ten is the limit, but I always shove something else in there. So I always try and aim when I get on an airliner. Do you have that fear when you get on an airliner with, your, with your luggage that they're <laughs> going to say, uh, "Ladies and gentlemen, we need a few ba- more bags to go in the hold." And I'm thinking, "No, don't you dare!" Yeah, I don't. Yeah, that's the my 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 biggest fear traveling on airliners is, is this noise. Because yeah. that is always the do up your seatbelts. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, and there could be just somebody flatulence coming, or rather turbulence coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big fan of flying either. Must have Have you ever pressed that button? Yeah, I, I would. No, I've never pressed that button. I'd be too. No, well, no, you have to that do button. that to get your gin and tonics and stuff. That's well, how you that's get it. You, you turn left. I don't. I turn right. <laughs> <laughs> totally different way of flying. Um, yeah, so I'm super excited about that, and um, it's um, I'm, I'm filming some interviews um, on behalf of a foundation across Africa that look after the farmer companies. Um, I just happen to be out there doing a documentary at the moment. So these, these two jobs have have kind of aligned perfectly, and I'm, I'm interviewing some directors of a medical institution. Uh, which I, I know for some people they're going to say, "Boy, that sounds doesn't sound too interesting." But I, uh, you know, in a in a part of the world where um, they have real tropical disease problems, talking to these people about how they deal with that 
I find that quite interesting. Mm. But I'm also out there making some re- reconstructions for a, a documentary, which means um, I'm using um, the X-T3. I'm travelling only with the X-T3, two of those, and um, just a handful of lenses. I think I've decided now on the 60 and the 23 and the 56. I really want to take the 50 because it's so light. I've, I've, I, you know, I know I'm going to use the 56 more. You can put that in your jeans pocket on the plane. It could do, couldn't you? Easily. Yeah. 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 Actually, you might get some un- unwanted attention, perhaps, if you put it in your, ge- in your front jeans pocket. <laughs> put it in the back. Is that a 50, or are you just pleased to see me? Welcome aboard, sir. <laughs> Don't press your button, please. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm very excited about that, and um, yeah, that's that's literally the kit I'm taking. Going to go up river this time, I think, mm-hmm. uh, which means I, I better have all my jabs. Going to be like a pin cushion. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I've never been to Africa actually. I'd like to go. I must admit, but I, it's not. You know, we, we, the, the stories you recite about the this the last trip you went to to the Gambia. Um, whilst I totally understand that it's a uh, you know it's exciting for you and it's uh, you know it's work and and everything. In my mind, it's not somewhere that I would ever th- think. Oh, you know, it's what? safe. I'd, I'd like to go it's there. It's safe. You know. And and I don't have that kind of wanderlust, yeah, okay. you know. And yeah, yeah. and whilst I would go in a heartbeat, yeah. it's not. Uh, you know, Africa is always kind of. I don't know. It's just always been somewhere oh, I've never, never quite amazing reached. place to photograph. I should probably share some of the pictures I took on the last one, hmm. uh, maybe on the show notes if we uh, if we could. Yeah, let's do that. Let's share some of those pictures on the, the Fuji Cast. All right, moving onwards uh, with Patrick Laroc, who is the Canadian um, Fujifilm X photographer, and uh, this is the second part of the two-part story about Patrick's. Um, well, when we talk about Wanderlust, we're talking. It wasn't so much Wanderlust. He was taking a road trip across. Canada. It was a it was a chance to find himself and find photography again. And this is this is part two. Oh, while I think about it though, just a side note: we've landed back from the road trip, and a change has happened to Patrick. The way he sees, the way he consumes what he sees. Today, he talks more about making the the everyday your open studio. In 2012, a year later, I, I bought an Expro One. I ditched the Nikon kit I was using at the time, and I bought. I bought a single lens with that with that camera, which was the 35 f1.4, like one of the three lenses that came out. But the biggest change uh, is that 2012 is the year where I became clinically incapable of not taking pictures. Uh, I think at some point my youngest probably thought like the camera was part of my chest or something, because uh, photography became this almost physical need. Uh, and slowly, this uh, somewhat manic reaction, uh, it, it changed me. It, it changed my eye, basically, because I started noticing details uh, and moments I would not have noticed before. There's an awakening, I think, um, when we realize that images are like this flowing river, you know, this constant stream of possibilities. When we realize there's no need to wait for, for something exceptional to happen, because so much of what surrounds us already contains the potential for beauty or impact or reflection. It all really hinges on us recognizing. I think photography, first and foremost, is an act of identification. We need to see the images before we, 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 can, we can capture them. We need to sense their possibility. 
But it's not easy, I think, to notice possibilities around us, you know, in a cup of coffee or a chair or while we're stuck in traffic. Uh, because our brain works against us uh, when it comes to normal circumstances, right? I mean, our brain tricks us into mostly noticing what's new and out of the ordinary. Uh, and this is probably like an old biological defense mechanism so we can identify threats in the trouble or something. Um, but that's what happens. And when we're at home, you know, surrounded by what we know and the people we love, uh, unless we're doing something special, uh, chances are we won't pick up the camera uh, and aim it at the kids watching TV or a houseplant or a desk lamp. Um, even if it happens to be visually interesting, because we tend not to see it. When I was a kid, um, we would sometimes spend a couple of weeks in the US uh, during our summer vacation. Um, this was before Trump. <laughs> Back when we were all friends. And, uh, <laughs> sorry, but yeah. And we'd drive there, usually to Maine. And I have this incredibly vivid memory of crossing the border and immediately being really, really excited about how different everything looked. And I, re I remember like saying this to my dad and him going, uh, yeah, sure, yeah. And, you know, these were the exact same trees, and they have maple trees in Vermont, right? It's, it's not, uh, but just knowing we were in an other country placed me in a state of mind where I couldn't notice uh, what was around me. And you know, that's why traveling is so enticing to us as photographers, right? It, it, because it's like kick-starting our eyes, basically. When we travel, everything seems worthy of our attention. You know, we shoot doors and sidewalks and cars, and, and, and all of it will seem worthy of, of like a big IKEA frame in the living room. And it might be. But the trouble is that, uh, you know, if we're always waiting for Paris or Rome, unless we're Roman, chances are we're missing out on a hell of a lot. Um, Dan Winters, do you guys know Dan Winters? He's an American portrait photographer. You'd recognize his images instantly. He's like a brilliant photographer. And he has, uh, he has this amazing book called Road to Seeing. Um, and on the back cover it reads, uh, I now find peace in the realization that millions of potential masterpieces happen each moment the world over and go unphotographed. And you can think this is kind of sad because we're missing out, but actually it means that there's always, always something to shoot. Uh, you know, every passing second. Images are everywhere and they're ongoing. I think the trick is to allow the ordinary to bleed into uh, the extraordinary. When we point the camera towards ourselves, not selfies, you guys know what I mean. I, I think we're kind of learning to accept and incorporate uh, a certain form of intimacy. And it's like opening the floodgates, uh, because if we train ourselves to do this, uh, it will eventually seep in to our work. We'll recognize this intimacy elsewhere as well. And it will transform how we look at the world, I think. Um, it's like penetrating the outer layers or, or punching through the surface. Um, which is why I think personal work is so, so interesting, so important, I mean. 
um, because it allows us, for one, to, to experiment without consequences. Um, and it doesn't have to be some big important project. It doesn't need a theme or just picking up the camera for ourselves beyond the work, beyond the everything else. Like we all did at first. I also happen to have this very, very strong belief in the power of storytelling uh, through visual essays. I do this on my blog. That's what we do with Kage as well. Um, but not just to relate uh, or summarize or chronicle events. You know, beyond the stories themselves, I see this as a way of de developing a sort of uh, second sense about any visual possibility. Um, because stories, you know, a story is basically a message across several images. That's all it is, right? And this kind of frees us from the tyranny of having to encapsulate everything into one single frame. That's a lot of pressure for one, you know, one image. And uh, when we remove that pressure, uh, when we don't necessarily have to find that one perfect image, uh, I think it becomes much easier to notice smaller details and moments because it allows us to step away. Um, and in terms of work, in my case, I have to, this has become a method that I apply to every single subject. You know, whatever the project, portrait, theater, product, spaces, even if it has no bearing on the final output, uh, I do it for myself because it allows me to approach everything as a sort of collection of fragments, uh, like a narrative to uncover. It turns everything into an exploration, in a way. And, and there's really, a, you know, there's, there's joy, I, I think, in exploring and in being surprised by completely unanticipated images. In the end, photography is a lot, you know, like any creative work, it's a lot of ups and downs. Um, I know quite a few photographers, and I don't know many who are confident all the time, or happy all the time. I'd be suspicious, actually, of anyone too happy. Uh, but when we get those spirits of doubt, I think it becomes really essential to remind ourselves why we're doing this, uh, and maybe look at the work we've done so far. There was a writer's strike at the New York Times, uh, which meant staff photographers were facing possibly an entire summer without work. And so they decided to, to, to start a project and go out and spend those summer months uh, documenting life in New York City. And they did. But as soon as the strike was over, everyone forgot about it, right? Um, until they found a box of pictures 40 years later, this winter. Um, you know, completely untouched, never developed. No one had ever seen those images. Uh, and there's, they've now been made public. There's a, there's a show in New York that, that's going on this summer, and you can find them. There's a bunch of them on the New York Times website. And it's crazy. It's this time capsule, right? Like, I mean, no one has a phone. Uh, so they're actually talking to each other, which is very strange. Uh, you know, kids are playing outside which is also very strange. It's like another planet beyond our imagination. Um, but that's the power of our craft, right? Regardless of, I know we're talking about, you know, obviously we're talking about work and we're talking about, but regardless of the type of work we're doing, uh, regardless of where we end up with our jobs and livelihoods and likes and followers, um, it all started by just wanting to preserve moments.
Um, that's our foundation. And it's our legacy, too. Uh, these traces uh, we leave behind, uh, you know, we're building the past, every one of us. Uh, frame by frame by frame by lovely, painstaking frame. Thanks, guys. Thank you to Patrick LaRocque for that insight into his life, his road journey and his discovery and falling back in love with photography again. I thought that was... Uh, I really enjoyed that. I really, I really enjoyed guy. his talk. He was an amazing speaker. Yeah. He's such a good guy. He is such a good guy. And I, I say that with a whole load of jealousy. <laughs> his pictures are so good. <laughs> I hate him. <laughs> uh, it was really nice spending some... We spent some sociable time with, uh, with him and... Um, Facundo Santana as well, the, mm. the Argentinian uh, photographer. It was really great fun. We took them down to Brighton, didn't we? We did, yeah. And it, took, them, took them to have some ropey fish and chips on a pier. Uh, and showed them proper <laughs> British seaside weather. <laughs> it was, yeah, wasn't it? Was, it was blowing a gale. Vertical rain. I don't think they cared. They took some, some great images, didn't they? Yeah, of course they did. Of yeah. course they did. Because yeah. they are Patrick LaRocque and Facundo Santana. Yeah. I mean, what? Ne- look, even the names, Patrick LaRocque, Facundo Santana. I know, they've got, yeah, they're not their real names. We've got Neil James with a, a funny E. <laughs> yeah, and then the funny E. Kevin. Yeah, the dogs on them <laughs> right Q&A time thank you very much for the um, for all your emails you've been sending in to click at fujicast.co.uk that's the address um, please keep sending them in uh, they can be artistic they can be technical whatever you like I mean they can be I guess they could be personal as well because I mean that plays a big part of how you what you do when you go out to photograph whatever comes in yes. you'll look at it absolutely you launch go okay so uh, funny enough I had a uh, another question actually this came in via the click at fujicast.co.uk email address and it was from somebody called Stephen Papa Papa Paper Papa Papa P-A-P-P-E-R Papa P-A-P-P-E-R Papa Papa yeah. This could be just a question about his name. Stephen Papper. <laughs> but even that's a cool name, isn't it? How do yeah. I end up with Kevin Mullins? Stephen well, Papper. You, Patrick could, you could change it. Facundo Santana. It's a more, a more sort of Mediterranean name. Mm. Well, you could just add some O's and E's and accents on it. Cavino Molinzo. <laughs> It's yeah. Italian. Yeah, 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 yeah. Alter yeah. ego. <laughs> anyway, the question was um, how do you get destination weddings? Mm. yeah um and i actually uh got into a little bit of an email conversation with uh steven and uh i asked him how long has he been shooting and you know does he uh, is that what he wants to do and the fact is he's only been shooting about six months and uh he's shot three or four weddings and he wants to do destination weddings right which of course is not yeah uh, it's not a bad thing to be thinking about. Well, you should aim high. You should aim high. And actually, if, if, destination if, weddings if are not high. destination weddings are high. No. Course. Yeah, well, that's, that was my point to him, was uh, A, will come with a lot of hard work and, you know, exposure to clients, etc., etc. It's not something that you can just kind of do straight away. I mean, it might happen. But, but the other thing that I was saying to him was it's 
hard work you know a lot of hard work it involves travel you need to price yourself very high to to counter that it's not a jolly in the sun it's it's not at all um and whilst i actually like doing destination weddings they have to fit into the schedule they have to fit into the price point uh it needs to be in a location that's uh, you know reasonable it can't be uh you know it's uh, for example i'm not likely to to be that interested in doing a destination wedding in uh inner city I don't know, kind of Christchurch in New Zealand. Well, yeah, I, I, don't, I know. don't know why that came to mind, but I'd love to go there. But but that's a journey. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but you know, the, the the fact is, we all get uh, you know those of us that have been shooting weddings long enough will get destination weddings. And I hate the term destination because destination to me that that that's weird you know just like abroad well locally in Christchurch their destination wedding would be a registry office in Swindon absolutely yeah, yeah it's funny and you know I see a lot of websites where they have destination wedding photographer as their keyword and you know they're really trying to rank for it and everything and I can't imagine on in any occasion does a, a bride go into Google and type in destination wedding photographer I can't imagine it she might take wedding photographer or British wedding photographer mm. Italy or something I don't know but anyway that's that's totally beside the point and uh, the point was yeah you know you can do them they, they're fun to do and uh, but they have to be taken on board with a lot of respect because there is a lot of time effort travel everything else involved in it it won't just happen you know nobody is going to come to to uh, Stephen having two or three weddings on his website and say you know, we really want you to come to Rome and photograph our wedding. It might happen, but it's unlikely to happen. So hard work, effort, graft, time. I was always keen for, for this podcast to be absolutely um, honest about stuff. Mm. And um, if I were if I were being candid about a lot of the stuff I see online, because it's very easy, um, Stephen, wasn't it? Very yeah. easy, Stephen, to, to think... You know, everybody's doing destination weddings. That's that's how the successful wedding photographers are. Um, but there is uh, consider this. There's there's three words: smoke and mirrors. Mm. And a, a lot of people travel for next to no money at all. Mm-hmm. Okay, there will be exceptions to, to to that case. Ross Harvey comes to mind, mm-hmm. a superb photographer uh, in the UK. Uh, Ross's were, you know, there's there's no denying the quality of oh, of, of his yeah, output. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, for every Ross Harvey, there are plenty that aren't earning um, whatever he's earning. Yeah, um, they're they're perhaps earning maybe even less than they would if they were going out yeah. locally because they want that because it looks good on on online. And yes, it does help. When I had a client meeting last night, and they said, "Oh, we loved that wedding that you did in X." I'm thinking, "Oh yeah, it's, <laughs> it mm. does look good." Yeah. But that's looking good to the client is far more important than looking good to other photographers. Mm-hmm. The, you know, ego is a big downfall for in the wedding industry. It's it gets in the way of a lot of people's progression, yeah. I find. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I'm quite vocal about that. You it's everything that you, you know, you put on your website, everything you do in your marketing, et cetera, et cetera. In my mind, it has to be about getting more clients, mm. you know. A thousand likes on a picture or the ego of bragging about having shot a wedding in such and such a location, um, bearing in mind they've made a massive loss, but they're doing it just for the bragging rights, is commercial suicide. Simple I mean, as that. you can have fun. There, there, there is the fun element to it. But consider this. You take a booking for somewhere close to the UK, let's say France, mm-hmm. Saturday, France, you're not going to be able to take and that's in june saturday Mm -hmm. in june in france you think that's fantastic 
you can't take a Friday and you can't take a Sunday. Now, your business model may not be like that. Yeah. But uh, a lot of photographers, they make hay while the sun shines. Absolutely. And, and, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that people shouldn't do destination. I do destination weddings. You know, this year I think I've got three um, that are abroad. And uh, But it's all factored. It's all in there. It's not yeah. – uh, It's uh, don't do it just for the sake of doing it. I do it because it will make me money. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's kind of the important thing, not for the, the rights to say I did it. Yeah. Kyle Bentley, any advice for somebody, this is really um, for you as well, Kev, to be honest, any advice for somebody starting out in street photography? Mine is a confidence issue, really. I've been using an X100T for my first steps onto the street. Great, cracking camera, perfect camera for that job. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've made some nice images. But I'm struggling with people giving me that look when they think I've taken their picture. Uh, Also, what's the legality with taking pictures of strangers on a street? Uh, Two questions there. Two very important questions. Yeah, uh, very important. It's something very close to my heart, especially the point on the legality stuff. Um, there, I kind of split this into two, the legalities and the ethical elements of it. So legally in the UK, currently, at least I think this is still the case, um, you can take a picture of anybody doing anything in a public place. As Not as, a child, though. Uh, yes, you can. Can you? You can. You are ah. legally allowed to do that. Right. That's why I'm very careful to say there's the ethical boundaries as well. And everybody is driven by their own personal ethical boundaries so for example i typically wouldn't take a picture of anything that i would be uncomfortable being in that picture myself so i you know i'm not taking pictures of homeless people or you know children for example um unless you know it's part of a project or something to raise awareness etc etc not when i'm just generally out doing street photography for fun for enjoyment so um but that sadly will change it's changed you know belgium france spain you cannot take Take a picture of anybody in public without asking their permission first. Yeah, I've and heard that, that yeah. is horrible. Yeah, um, not because well, that's that's the end of street photography and documentary <sighs> do- documenting what life is like on the streets in those countries. Absolutely, and that's that's is the thing. Va- Valérie Jardin is Valérie Jardin. Uh, she's a French um, street photographer, isn't she? She is French, although she lives in Minnesota now. Oh right, okay. Yeah, but yeah. but I, I did hear something of her going back to France to make some street pictures and. And I was thinking, yeah, but are you allowed to now? Well, my understanding is not. And certainly Spain and places like that, you... I mean, there are there will be um, caveats to that, such as if you're, I think, if you're doing it for, uh, you know, an artistic project or something. I, there, you know, there will be caveats, but generally, you can't. And you know, I think we mentioned this in week one. Imagine, imagine in twenty years' time, when you know, thirty, forty years' time, when our grandkids are in school, and you know. The teachers will be like, yeah, here's loads of pictures of the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s. This is what people got up to. Sorry, we can't show you anything since then because nobody was allowed to take any pictures. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, how, how incredibly bad is that? You know, I mean, look at the stuff like Joel Merwitz. Look at the Bob Mazer stuff we talked about in, in week one on the tube. Well, the tube stuff would never. I mean, that that's that's documenting history and that would never have appeared if it was banned. Absolutely. And, and we would never know what, what culture was like on the underground in the 70s and 80s. Exactly. And this is all because of the political correctness and, you know, blah, 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 blah. I, or, my only hope is that as the millennials get older, um, they're the sensible people of this generation in terms of uh, understanding, you know, kind of artistic rights and photography and everything, that the, 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 the fuddy-duddies that are making these decisions right now, the ones who are just you know protecting their own political careers they will disappear and retire and write their books and everything and mm. and the millennials will take charge and and understand that actually we need photos um 
What, what about that? Um, can I just expand on that? You said so you can take a you can make a picture of a, a child in a street photography scenario. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, look, I look at the work. Um, I mean, look at those those the the works of um, oh his name escapes me. What's going on with me? Uh, the Bristol photographer, Magnum chap, uh, Martin Parr. Martin Parr. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, what's going on? Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of his uh, classic images of the seaside and all those kind of yeah. uh, those images that he's very much associated with. I mean that. But yeah. but moving on from that, the legality then of, of making that image of, say, child seaside eating ice cream, typical mm-hmm. um, British mm-hmm. um, holiday, can you then use that online? So you can take it, but can you use it? Uh, yes. Uh, at least, again, I was, this is my understanding at the moment. What you can't do in the UK, um, I believe the law is that if you use that picture for and th- and this ha- there has to be somebody who is immediately identifiable in the frame okay so if it's a big picture of trafalgar square and it's not obvious who the main focal point is then mm-hmm. this doesn't apply but if the main focal point is somebody obvious in that picture and you want to use it for commercial advertising marketing in a book etc we're talking about child or adult now, anybody okay. yeah just the public then i believe that you need to have uh, model release permissions all of that stuff which i still think is actually pretty bad um this is why i'm i'm you know i'm really conscious and cautious to uh, you know to to impart on people this idea of the ethicalities of it because ethicality is that real world the, the ethical nature of photography yeah mm-hmm. um you know because going back to uh martin did you say his name was it's carl carl oh, sorry carl. Question. sorry carl going back to his original thing about this the the idea of being uncomfortable you know the if you look at some of these pictures uh you know let's just take martin parr for example and some of those older ones of the on the beach with the kids and everything you know martin is has a very different approach i would imagine to most normal normal most street photographers of that are out there these days Mm. doing general street photography so you know i don't personally think that actually you know just kind of running into a scene taking a picture and running away is is a good thing ethically to do that's my that's my personal boundary it doesn't mean it's right um certainly people do different things different ways um doogie wallace would be an example of this the, the guy that takes the pictures outside uh, knightsbridge stores yeah absolutely Bang! you know these these pictures of of um uh, of people driving ferraris or coming out laden with shopping so let's just take doogie wallace for example now he's he's got an entire set of books there was a bbc documentary um what's it called harrod uh, about harrods wasn't it um the rich of harrods it was called, or something I, anyway yeah, there was a bbc documentary about it no there is no and literally he does what you just said he, he reaches into their cars take a picture of them and then walks away mm. and there's no way that the people in those pictures have in retrospectively been approached and asked no is it okay? So you know, remember that guy that you were really angry with yeah. that reached into your Maserati and yeah. really upset you. They're unlikely to have ever signed a release form. Uh, no, of course, and uh, you know, it just wouldn't have happened. So maybe some, he says, <laughs> trying to rescue himself in case Doogie's listening. But well, I, I, I mean, I have, I, I don't know Doogie at all in any way, shape, or form. But I would be, I, I would imagine that he would be quite vocal in terms of standing up for photographers' rights in that yeah, respect. I anyway. Would, yeah. Um, I mean, I've got loads of his books. I, you know, the the one with the uh, the Hens and Stags, uh, Shoreditch Life. Yes, amazing yes. stuff. The amazing Hens and Stags one in particular. Yeah, uh, you know, and the thought of not being able to have that stuff available for us to look at, uh, it just blows my mind. Mm. 
Um, anyway, so going back to Kyle, I don't suggest if you, you know, in terms of this idea of worrying about street photography, you do you operate the way that Dougie does <laughs> for a start. Um, but you know, there are there are mechanisms of taking photographs. With you know, I always struggle with this idea of trying to to encourage people to take candid pictures, but also try not to look like you're some kind of stalker. You know, so you can you can employ techniques such as zone focusing. You can shoot from the hip. You can uh, you know you can you can just wander in with the camera to your eye these days. You know, and, and the cameras are small. You've got flip screens, all of that kind of stuff. There are ways of uh, you know of, of not being concerned about it and the absolute worst case scenario if you're taking a picture of somebody it's probably because you're they, you should be because it's an interesting picture to take either the person is interesting to look at or there's something interesting happening worst case scenario that person says hey did you just take my picture you say yeah you know what i did i love your hat i love your hair i love your teeth or you know whatever i'm doing a i'm doing a photo essay of all the people who are on who yeah, hang around this idea. street corner and what you're doing later yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um you know do you want to see a picture of it i'll send you a, yeah. give me your email address i'll send you a copy of it you know it, it has never happened to me not once has anybody ever said hey did you what take you my picture not once there, there is a guy in and his name does escape me he's not particularly well known it was just a feature i was reading um who takes a stack of nice business cards around with him yeah. uh it's a it's it's obviously a street photography business card and he says mm-hmm. um and if anybody stops him he gives them this card and says you know i'm making this great project i'd love you to be part of it why don't you look at my website and that instantly floors everybody yeah the other thing about this is that uh and i get this a lot on my workshops is that people Street photography can be anything, by the way. It can be a portrait of somebody or it can be, you know, in a library. It can be It doesn't have to be candid, does it? It doesn't. No. no, it doesn't. It's just a term. It's just a People name. People seem to think it's a candid kind of, kind of um, expression only. I operate candidly, okay, but that doesn't... That's just the way that I do things. So often the people that I come across on, you know, when I'm speaking to them about this, you know, oh, I'm really uncomfortable. I really want to take a, p- person, a picture of that person, but I'm really uncomfortable, you know, by just doing it. And that me- that tells me that actually what they're interested in is a portrait rather than a candid picture of that person. They they want a portrait of that person. So my advice to them is just go up to them and say, hey, you know what? I really like your what you're wearing, your whatever, you know, your tattoos, your hair, your, your nose ring, whatever it is. Can I take your portrait? I'll send you a copy of it. You know, I'm doing I'm a street photographer. Yeah. Um, because understanding the difference between what you want to take and what you are taking is also critical. Um, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with asking somebody for their portrait. It can still be classed as street photography. Well, there we go, Carl. That answers your question. If you'd like to send in your questions, it's click at fujicast.co.uk. Click at fujicast.co.uk. That's it for another week. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, if you'd like to check us um, out on our various YouTube channels, etc., I'll let, I'll let you go first. Uh, at YouTube, it's uh, just search for Kevin Mullins. And um, on Instagram, it's uh, Kevin Mullins Photography. And Neil James for me on Instagram, N-E-A-L-E, and uh, Neil James Photo on YouTube. And of course, all these show notes, etc., you'll find on the fujicast.co.uk site. Thank you very much. We'll be back next week. Have a great week. Thank you. Enjoy. Enjoy.